Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, Crisis Point, Surrey's on the verge of having 400 portables by September, with enrollment continuing to balloon. Mayor Brenda Locke joins us. Plus, America Bound, how does a small U.S. border city known for Bellas Fair Mall, Costco, and Trader Joe's have extra cancer care capacity compared to Metro Vancouver? Plus, has it come to this? Towns across BC introduced bylaws banning drug use in public places. Will it have any effect? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Surrey City Council said the school shortage in that community has hit crisis stage, and if present trends continue, there could be nearly 400 portables in the city by September of this year. Now, remember, the NDP government promised to get rid of portables when they were first elected in 2017. Now, the government has built, or is in the process of building, 16 new schools and additions, which would add 10,000 new spaces in the city, but that's still isn't enough. Joining me now to discuss the issue of portables, non-disclosure agreements, and yes, Surrey policing is Mayor Brenda Locke. Mayor Locke, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Now, when you look at education, it's a provincial responsibility. Generally, mayors and councillors stick to um, municipal issues. Uh, What compelled you to comment on Surrey's schools? Well, you know, I wish we could stick to uh, stick to the Surrey story, Um, but unfortunately, part of the challenge for us is the demand for growth, the demand for new housing, part of uh, the housing crisis that the Premier is talking about and dealing with that has impacted infrastructure in so many ways in Surrey, and uh, schools are certainly one of them. And uh, in Surrey, we have 77,000 kids in our school district. That is significantly more than anywhere else. The challenge is the pressure for us uh, to build more and more housing is now starting to be impacted by the uh, impact it's having on some of our schools. We have schools, Jazz, that are 160% occupied. This is not, this is not good for Surrey students. Mm-hmm. Now, the Ministry of Education says, look, that we spent over half a billion dollars on Surrey schools since 2017, that they are building, mm-hmm. building as fast as we can. Is this a question of uh, a greater emphasis and focus on Surrey in your mind, even though, as you know, uh, the ministry and government's going to face pressure from many other municipalities in Metro Vancouver and say, look, we're growing pretty fast as well. We need schools too. Yeah, you know, Surrey, there's only a few school districts that are actually growing. So I don't think they're going to hear that from Vancouver or or Richmond or Burnaby. Those aren't growing school districts. We are, and we're uh, growing very, very rapidly. So um, I think it's it's a lot different when it comes to schools uh, on infrastructure generally. I would I, I would agree with you, but not when it comes to schools. There's only a handful of school districts that are growing. We are one of them, and it has been like this for a long time. We have been talking about the portable crisis in Surrey for a long time. In fact, I remember government saying they were going to get rid of, this government said they were going to get rid of portables. I don't know that that's even our goal. It's, I mean, it's, it's lofty, but it's just our schools are at capacity and then some. 
I mean, I, I never thought I'd uh, I'd uh, be around for the day where we started talking about double decker portables. I mean, it really is yeah um, uh, quite uh, quite shocking. Uh, you know, this doesn't happen without growth, and I think your community grows by about fifteen hundred new residents per month. Uh, in regards mm-hmm. to uh, housing approvals, which you would know very well, which you have to deal with on a regular basis, uh, this isn't going to stop in regards to growth in Surrey. I'm assuming. No, and it isn't, and, and that's at the bequest of, the, of Metro Vancouver. The regional growth strategy for this area is very, very directed up south of the Fraser. So it's Surrey, Langley, and North Delta. We are where the growth of this whole area is going to be. And uh, so with that, obviously, um, is the challenge with infrastructure and schools in our area. I can tell you, uh, we have a very young community. If for anybody who's been here on the weekends, you'll know our our parks and our fields are, are full of uh, kids and youth, and uh, so schools are a, a very, very large part of the equation for infrastructure in our city. Mm-hmm. Uh, since I have you here, I do want to ask you a couple of questions uh, just in regards to policing. Uh, there was conversation the last 24 hours or so that uh, you would have to sign a non-disclosure agreement, an NDA, which some would argue is a common thing when it, when it comes to looking at uh, sensitive documents, uh, when it comes to uh, the government, uh, because some of this information you do not want uh, uh, ever to be out uh, because you don't want the bad guys to, to have uh, information on staffing. Uh, I just want to get a sense of where are we on this? Are you going to be signing an NDA to, to actually look at that report that the uh, province uh, did uh, did provide? You know, first of all, I'll tell you, I see sensitive material every single day, Jeff. I am the... Uh, I am the chair of the Surrey Police Board. I see it in my role as the mayor. I already um, have my own um, my own sign off on things that I have to adhere to, and of course we have closed meetings. All of council does. But um, yeah, the problem is we didn't have an NDA before us. And I heard yesterday, and I was disappointed to hear this, quite frankly. I heard yesterday the Solicitor General say, all I have to do is sign the NDA. Well, the fact of the matter is we don't have the NDA. That is being worked out between the lawyers, between the province and the city of Surrey lawyers. It's not something that is in front of me to sign. And I found that um, rather uh, disappointing and either... He doesn't know or he's, he, he just doesn't understand that it is the lawyers that are working on the NDA. We still don't have it yet. I do understand that the wording is getting um, addressed as we speak, mm-hmm. and hopefully we will have that finalized today. But there's lots more to it than just sign off. We're talking about um, indemnification for our staff who have to look at it. We're talking about our need as a city to provide the transparency we want to provide to our residents. But certainly we understand since sensitive issues and how they have to be protected. Mm-hmm. There is no doubt about that. So just to say if you don't sign it, I mean, from what I can tell, it looks like you're going to, there's going to be wording there that you would be able to sign. But if you weren't able to be able to sign, does that mean council can't look at, look at it either then? That is, uh, I don't know all the specifics about that until we get it back from uh, the lawyers, mm-hmm. because there's a, there's all kinds of complications to it, not just about any one of us. Wonder if only one of us doesn't sign. If you're a counselor and I'm chairing a meeting, I have to let you speak. 
I have to let you enter that. I can't say you didn't sign the NDA. You can't come into a closed meeting. There's so many complications that we have to also explore that relate to the community charter and how we deal uh, with that and what our lawyers are now going to say. This, um, to me, was not necessary. We already have the checks and balances. As I said, I see sensitive information every day. I am quite used to seeing confidential information. I am used to being in closed meetings and know the implications of me disclosing anything out of closed. I understand that. So does every single one of our counselors. So um, will we sign the NDA if it uh, if it meets all the checks and balances we need, which um, includes the indemnification for our staff, not even for council, for our staff that have to write the reports and also uh, so that we can uh, make sure that our residents understand what is in that report. That is uh, critical. Final question. When will the policing situation in your mind be settled? Can it be done by the end of June or can we expect this well into summer and even the fall of this conversation to continue? Oh boy, Jazz, every time we talk, <laughs> I, I, I usually say it. it's two weeks, it's two weeks. You know, realistically, it absolutely can happen by the end of June. It could have happened by the end of December if the government had respected the wishes of the city of Surrey. And the reality is both the minister and the premier have stated that it is, it is the responsibility and it is the right of the city of Surrey to choose their police force. So we're going to hold them to that. And we're going to, uh, we're going to get this report and we'll see, uh, what happens moving forward. But you know what? We're working as fast as we can. It's, it has been the solicitor general that waited till the 28th of April to uh, provide any information. So are you open to having the SPS as the police force for Surrey? Or do you still think, uh, it would take, uh, a lot of information? Uh, to convince you? Are you still of the mind that it still should be our CMP before reading this report? Well, I haven't got any reason to change my mind, that's for sure. I haven't seen anything in the report, the redacted report. I haven't had anything of any substance from the Surrey Police Service that would make me change my mind. Absolutely not. And then when I look at the uh, fiscal reality, uh, this is this is not uh, a good a good idea for Surrey. So, uh, no, I have no reason to change to the SPS. Brenda, thank you so much for your time. Looking forward to having you on the show for an extended conversation in a few weeks. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jeff. Bye now. What you're hearing there are sirens uh, in New Westminster about uh, two and a half hours ago uh, along near 6th Street. Uh, it appeared uh, at this point that it was involved of a New West police and a carjacking. Uh, the carjacking itself actually was a, t- a taxi. Uh, at this point, we can tell you that because of that police incident, 6th Street is closed from Princess to Hamilton. 7th Avenue is also closed from 5th Street to 8th Street. And police are asking uh, residents to avoid the area uh, as they continue their inve- investigation. So there was a police pursuit of some sort in that uh, uptown area. And like I said, it was a, from what we hear so far, as a carjacking, but that has not yet been confirmed by police. And the carjacking actually involved a taxi. Uh, joining me now to talk a little bit about the event and the broader issue of crime and safety is a witness to today's event, Paul Minhas. Mr. Minhas is a new Westminster City Councillor. Paul, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jazz. Thank you for having me. Quite an eventful uh, afternoon for you. Uh, tell me what you saw. 
Jazz, first, I would like to, uh, I'm, uh, I, I just want to remind the audience as well as you that I'm still shaking and uh, quite the adrenaline rush. And, uh, you know, uh, I never did I ever think that I was going to witness something like that. Uh, you only see it in the movies. Uh, what I saw today uh, was extremely disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm sure everybody that witnessed it, um, it's beyond words as to what's happening or what happened today and what's happening in New Westminster. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the incident first. And let's talk about the broader issue for a second. So uh, from what I saw, and, and there's some video posted on, on Twitter, there appeared to be a taxi driving down the street, uh, and there was a police pursuit. There were police coming from the other side as well. The taxi itself, uh, from what we hear so far, uh, that it wasn't a taxi driver driving the cab. It looked like it appeared to be, uh, or some witnesses have said, a carjacking of some sort. Yes, uh, I guess the incident uh, started uh, quite some time ago, and uh, when I uh, when I was uh, around the neighborhood or the area of where it unfolded, everything unfolded. Um, they had cornered the gentleman in the taxi, and he wasn't the taxi driver. Uh, it was carjacked, and uh, they cornered him first around sixth and sixth, and somehow he managed to get away from there. And he came down on 6th Avenue and then finally uh, in the intersection of 6th Street and 7th Avenue is where uh, they uh, finally got to him and they pulled him out of the vehicle. What was going through your mind when you saw that? Uh, not in my city. Uh, this, is, uh, this is just crazy. Uh, these are things, like I was saying earlier, uh, are things that you see in the movies. Uh, you know, we have had, I think, almost three stabbings in the last month or so. Uh, uh, open-air shooting where one person got injured, and luckily nobody else got injured or killed. And now a carjacking. Uh, I, can, I cannot even imagine what is going on through, uh, with that taxi driver uh, that had to deal with that and everybody that was involved in this. Unbelievable. Sorry, what do you think is causing this? Uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of factors. I think... Uh, um, myself and Council Fontaine, we tried to bring emotions earlier. Uh, we were defeated 5-2. Uh, but I believe this is, uh, this council, uh, every time we try to bring something forward, myself especially, it's misleading, it's misguiding, misinformation, uh, including what the police officers are saying or whatever. Uh, I think this, uh, this council, backed by the NDP uh, on a provincial level, um, is not listening to the people, the residents, or the business community. And especially um, Vancouver, with all its challenges, moving people out of uh, the Maine and Hastings area, they're being pushed out to the, the suburbs. And New West has become a prime destination, a location, and we are seeing the results of that with examples of today. So the clampdown that we saw with uh, Vancouver police fire, the tent city, you're saying that clampdown has led to some of the challenges and problems that Vancouver's had to deal with has been pushed out to New Westminster. And when you say the, the problems, are you talking about open drug use, violence, all of that? It's a combination of everything from graffiti to disorder, uh, to uh, um, broken windows, uh, breaking into businesses, residents, uh, all the crime, uh, including uh, people, the, their safety, everything is to do with the people moving into the neighborhood. A lot of the people that are moving into the neighborhood, they're not even residents or part of New Westminster. And, uh, um, you know, it's a challenge for the police. 
I believe we just lost, from what I heard, three other officers to Surrey police last week alone. Last year, we lost 20 officers. And the police can only do so much, and especially with this one right now. Definitely, he got arrested. Is he going to be out on bail by dinner time, 5 o'clock today? That's the bigger question. And I think uh, the, the upper government, uh, provincial government, the federal government has to do a lot more. This is becoming a very common thing, and it's uh, being subjected. The people are being subjected to something they shouldn't be subjected to. Now, Mr. Minhas, you said that you and your fellow councillor, uh, Daniel, uh, Daniel Fontaine, sorry, uh, brought in or in- wanted to introduce uh, a motion, uh, but it was voted down. What w- was that? Uh, the similar to what many other councillors throughout British Columbia are bringing forward to their councils, the the banning of of drug use in in public places such as um, public parks, playgrounds, and beaches. Absolutely, uh, uh, you're absolutely right about that, uh, Jazz. And and I think we um, uh, all councillors uh, and mayors throughout the province have to look into this. Uh, there's much bigger consequences as to what's going to happen next. Uh, I see it day in, day out. Uh, you know, I work from morning till evening, and I have a small business on Columbia Street. I used to have two businesses, and I've even lost my main business of 18 years due to a fire. Uh, and, and these challenges are con- constantly going to arise if we, as elected officials, do not address the necessary uh, you know, problems that we, we are facing. We cannot be just, uh, you know... It can't be on deaf ears. It yeah. ha- somebody has to listen. Somebody has to do something. And, uh, you know, um, it is important that all mayors and council get together and find solutions uh, for this problem. Do you feel safe walking in your community? Uh, not anymore. Jazz, I'll be very blunt. I'll be very honest. Uh, I never thought I would say that. But uh, this day and age, at a certain time of the uh, day, especially in the evening, is it safe? No, it isn't safe. Not on Columbia Street, not in New Westminster. And I don't think it's just the downtown problem anymore of what's happening, what happened today. Uptown is no different. And I think there's a lot of other municipalities that are probably facing the same challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing new uh, than what is happening in New Westminster. But we are being, um, you know, we were facing a lot more than what we ever did before. Uh, Paul, uh, a very eventful day for you. I really appreciate uh, you making time for us. I know what you saw was just a few hours ago, but thank you so much for sharing your story today. Thank you, Jess. Let's talk about uh, the hot weather. I'm sure uh, if you're out and about, you're enjoying uh, the pleasant weather. Uh, outside. It's been pretty good today, but uh, uh, there are some really hot days or, uh, earlier this week. And um, uh, if you don't have a cooling system uh, in your home, whether it be a, a pump system or an air conditioner, uh, it can be quite challenging. And we certainly know with uh, high temperatures, which we saw during the 2021 heat dome, it led to uh, people dying uh, because they did not have cooling systems. It also uh, pointed out a, a strong, a significant weakness uh, in our overall uh, public safety system, not just the provincial level, but the municipal level. You know, this uh, year, even last week, as we talked about the, 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 the heat that was coming, we spoke to uh, Patrick Johnstone, the uh, mayor 
of New Westminster about uh, potentially opening up cooling stations uh, in the community. Uh, but one of the things that the um, uh, Vancouver Local Government Association meeting recently, there was a, a policy put forward, uh, which was defeated, but it was a very close vote. It was put forward by Port Moody, basically saying that landlords uh, moving forward are, of course, as we know, responsible for providing heat whenever you pay your rent. But they also, in that policy, um, proposed policy, they would also be ref- uh, responsible for a cooling system of some sort. Now, I say all of this because uh, other governments seem to be moving forward uh, when it comes to learning from the heat dome. And I'm talking about Washington State uh, and Oregon, and uh, both states, uh, to a certain degree, uh, are working towards providing air conditioners for those most at risk, and especially those that are low income. Joining me now to talk a little bit about um, these heat events and helping our fellow citizens is Rowan Burge. He's a provincial director of the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition. Rowan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me today, Jazz. Happy to be here. Uh, walk me through this. What kind of things are you hearing um, during this week in regards to people dealing with, with the heat and even perhaps uh, previous events? Uh, what are you hearing from low-income residents? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, a lot of people are really worried and concerned for their health and safety. We work with a lot of folks that are fairly isolated and don't have access to some of the same resources that other folks might. So, you know, as you pointed out, you know, air conditioning is such an important mitigation tool, but not everybody can afford an air conditioning unit or a heat pump or the cost of energy that it takes to run those systems. And so, you know, we really look to Washington and Oregon and what they've implemented in terms of advocating for free units for people who are on social assistance. So mm-hmm. we, we are really strongly recommending that the BC government take that up as well. So so to my understanding, the uh, the Oregon legislature passed the, the law in March of 2022, and that was in response to the previous year's heat dome that killed more than 100 people in that state. Uh, when, when when they say distribute air conditioners to those who can't afford it, it's like a cooling unit you can put in a room that you could purchase a at a like a at a Canadian tire, and is that Absolutely. what they mean by air conditioners? Yes, that's exactly right. And you know, if we start to think about cooling as a human right rather than sort of as a luxury or like a thing that people just get to enjoy and appreciate in the summer, um, you know, there's a good reason for that being thought of as a medically supported, life sustaining device for folks who can't afford, you know, those cooling. Um, that cooling access in these kinds of extreme weather events that we're seeing. So in Oregon, I think they distributed over 3,000 air conditioners. And uh, I think the, the, the Washington State has opened up a low-income energy assistance program uh, for mobile air conditioning units as well. Uh, is there been any indication from the B.C. government at this point that they, they're moving in that direction? Hard to say, honestly, following the coroner's inquiry report after the heat dome of 2021, where, you know, 619 people in, in British Columbia died, um, there was a recommendation made that the BC government review the possibility of having such a program. Unfortunately, the program is not yet in place, and um, it's about five months overdue from when we we're supposed to hear uh, more from that review process. So, you know, it's been two years since the heat dome of 2021, and, you know, we're anticipating hot weather this summer, so we're really advocating to push forward with that program and that uh, sort of review to see if that might be feasible in BC, because we know that, you know, the problem isn't that people don't know it's hot, it's that they can't afford, you know, the thing that would keep them cool. Mm-hmm. Do you think perhaps, uh, forget the provincial government, because it can be a bit slower moving and it's got the whole province to, to, to worry mm-hmm. about. Uh, let's say, I'm just using, I'm taking New Westminster as an example example if the community of new westminster you know were to purchase 
let's say 50 of these units, wouldn't that be better? And then, you know, residents can at least come in, put a deposit down and, and, and use those units for a set period of time. Let's say it's kind of like borrowing a library book. You, you take it away for a week knowing full well there's a, there's a, a weather event coming. Would, would that not be a bit more uh, grassroots and perhaps closer to residents who need it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant idea. And, you know, I commend New West for considering that as an option. I think, you know, if municipalities are able to activate whatever kind of heat responses that support uh, folks experiencing barriers, that's fantastic. Um, Because we know that, you know, many people can't access a cooling center in the same way if people with mobility issues, a lot of seniors um, who may experience, you know, different challenges, that can be a really nice alternative option. But I think we really need a suite of mitigation measures to make sure that people are being protected and cared for and safe in these kinds of events. Uh, I brought up the issue of uh, the Lower Mainland uh, Municipal Governments Association that voted down uh, the proposal by Port Moody, which basically uh, says that landlords uh, already responsible for providing heat uh, would also be responsible for providing cooling system. Would you support something like that? Because I, we've heard from landlords who just call the open line here and said, look, I've got enough costs. I shouldn't be able to, I shouldn't be the one responsible for a cooling system as well. There's got to be a better system. Or do you, or are you supportive of, of putting the onus on landlords to providing perhaps a, one of those cooling systems that you and I were talking about? Yeah, you know, we really do support more regulation in this area. I know it's really challenging for, you know, individual landlords to, you know, afford this extra equipment and it doesn't really, there's not a lot of incentives for landlords to provide this kind of cooling for their tenants. Um, But we do know that it is a, uh, an important part of a human rights spectrum in terms of cooling. And, you know, so many people would really benefit from having access to cooling in their buildings and suites, um, you know, and other housing programs, social housing, supportive housing, shelters. Also, uh, we really are encouraging folks to, you know, take on policies that would ensure heat and cooling access. You know, for so long in Canada, the issue was keeping people warm in the winter. And it's, you know, it's a different kind of infrastructure that we're sort of having to develop um, as we see temperatures rise. This wasn't an issue 10 years ago, and, and now it is. And now we have to really be um, robust to prevent, you know, prevent the loss of life that we saw two years ago that would have been preventable had we known how to better care for people living in BC um, and their access to cooling. Did you ever think that as, a, as a provincial director of the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition, you'd actually be talking about air conditioning? No, <laughs> honestly, we weren't very climate um, involved for quite a long time, but more and more as we see climate impacts um, sort of disproportionately affect low-income people and some of the other populations that we work with, like elder folks and people with disabilities, it's become more and more a part of my job. So it's a, it's definitely an evolution we didn't predict. Yeah, it is a, it's, it is a much different environment, that's for sure. Uh, Rowan, thank you so much for your time today. For sure. Thanks for having me. Yesterday, the Vancouver Park Board uh, held a flag-raising ceremony at Brockton Point in Stanley Park. Um, they, the flags that they unveiled represented the Musqueam people, the Squamish people, and the Tsleil-Waututh nations, and those flags will fly permanently in Vancouver Stanley Park. Now, it's the first time the local First Nations flags have been permanently raised in one of uh, the city's uh, uh, parks. Now, the recommendation to raise those flags come from Stanley Park's Intergovernmental Working Group, which includes staff from the Park Board and, of course, the Three Nations as well. It's obviously a conversation in and around uh, reconciliation uh, as well. Uh, at that event, uh, Wilson Williams, who's a Squamish Nation elected councillor and a spokesperson, spoke. Uh, here's what he had to say. By 1923, those living here were considered, and I'm going to use the word again, because we didn't know what the word was, is squatters. We became squatters in our own village. 
that was Squamish Nation uh, elected councillor uh, Wilson Williams. And Mr. Williams went on to say that uh, by raising those flags yesterday, uh, it's, a, it's a way to demonstrate to the outside world that, uh, that First Nations people are deeply connected to the land and water. And raising uh, the flags also encourages the broader community to learn more about our history, our culture, and and traditions. Uh, somebody else who was there uh, was Scott Jensen, who's the Vancouver Park Board Commissioner, who joins us now. Scott, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. How important uh, was yesterday when it comes to uh, raising the flag um, at Brockton Point uh, from the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations? I, I find it, it was it was an extremely important event. Um, it was very moving to be there. Uh, you know that uh, that land uh, was uh, a, a gathering place for for those three nations uh, that predates our uh, Vancouver by thousands of years. And uh, to have that location be the location for uh, the raising of those flags uh, and the first flags, you know, in a Vancouver park, um, or is it was so special. Mm-hmm. Uh, and will those, the flags of those three nations be there, remain permanently then? Yes. Uh, th- those flags replaced three other flags that were there, the Canadian flag, the BC flag, and the Union Jack. And I understand they were taken down in 2017 due to aging infrastructure. Was there any conversation about keeping those flags uh, in and around uh, Brockton Point as well? Um, if there was, I wasn't uh, privy to those conversations. Um, ultimately, when those uh, flags, uh, when the from when those poles were assessed to, as being d- too damaged to to be there, um, and they were removed, I, I believe that there was no conversation at that time. Um, and I, in fact, I don't think there was much of a conver- uh, uh, a recognition that they weren't there anymore. I think most people. Uh, came there and, and passed them without really recognizing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, you know, it is a, a great site for those three flags. Um, and, um, you know, I think most people who live and breathe in Vancouver understand you don't have to go very far to, to see uh, the British Columbia flag, the, Can- the Canadian flag. Um, they um, are proudly uh, displayed throughout the city. Um, having this one location, this very special location to have these three flags, um, I think is really significant and really um, symbolic of our desire for reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Are, there are Canadian flags and BC flags and even the Union Jack. Are they displayed in other parts of the park? Um, I'm not sure, honestly, to tell you the truth. Um, I, um, I believe if I was to go to probably Prospect Point, there, I believe there are some flagpoles there. Um, but um, ultimately, when I go to Stanley Park, uh, I'm drawn to, um, you know, the beaches and to the totems, and um, that's what brings me in there. And uh, certainly I also love visiting the, the seeing the, the horses, uh, the VPD-mounted unit when I go to Stanley Park. I'm not really looking for flags. However, I will make a point of uh, noticing the flags at uh, Brockton Point from now on. Yeah, the reason I was asking that is, you know, I, I understand, and you raise a very good point in regards to the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations and their people being there for uh, thousands of years before uh, European settlers and, and, and immigrants from all over the world have come to Vancouver since then. But in regards to reconciliation, do you think it would have been better to include the Canadian flag and the BC flag 
and uh, perhaps the Union Jack, you know, to reflect our past history with uh, um, these people who were there uh, thousands of years before in regards to reconciliation? I would say that the, the intergovernmental team um, that, that worked through this mm-hmm. um, did a great job. And, um, you know, from my personal perspective, and this is just my personal perspective, I understand that some people may be really upset that a flag has been removed from that area. Again, my personal perspective is to take that feeling and, and times it by how much your house matters to you. And imagine losing your house. And that's what happened to the families of those Indigenous people that lived there. They were removed from their home. And so when I look at that flag, that symbolizes a a step towards a new direction where we recognize our past, where we recognize that um, we as a people can reconcile, we can move forward, but we do need to uh, acknowledge the truth of where we are and how we got here. Mm -hmm. And so um, if, if, Losing that Canadian flag is really hurtful to you. I understand that. But you also have to understand how that, um, how, how the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh feel about losing that land in the first place and, and understand the momentousness of having those flags come and fly um, at Brockton Point yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure it was very uh, moving ceremony uh, as well. Will there be other... Uh opportunities uh, or the park or take other opportunities to look at other places where a flag could be raised or, or, uh, or uh, first nations culture could be recognized within the park board system. Are there other opportunities the park board's looking at? Yes. And, and, and we are, we have a, a, a great staff that is, that is looking at how we can be much more inclusive um, to um, including, you know, not only these flags, as you said, art, uh, public art, is something that really draws a lot of people. In fact, I've, I've mentioned already, um, you know, the totem poles in Stanley Park, although they're not indigenous to that area, and those are totems that represent many different parts of, of British Columbia, uh, that is the most one of the most visited spots in Stanley Park, and that concession is our most profitable concession in the park. This is something people care about, and uh, the more that we can reflect that throughout our city, um, the better off. And the more it is actually... Uh, indigenous to the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh, and not representative of other areas throughout Canada. Certainly that's something that we, I think that many of us are proud of, but we also can really showcase um, the art and culture of the the people that have lived here uh, since time immemorial. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I look at the Nookshook on, um, along English Bay. You know, how many people come there and take photos? Like, Uh, Our First Nations culture is celebrated in Canada, and it is not something to be feared. It is something to be celebrated, and it adds so much more vibrancy to our city. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how we can weave that into what we already have as a beautiful city and showcase and learn about our our culture and and the people that that lived here for so long. Scott, thank you so much. continue to live here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for calling.